It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Who, who is it? It's Jonathan. How do I know this is really Jonathan? Let me in right now or I'll scream so loud they all hear me. Oh, okay, okay, it's Jonathan. Come on, come on, it's All right, okay. What's going on here? Well, this last place that they don't seem to have, like, breached yet. Everywhere else is just compromised. Yeah. The whole city's going to get, man. Yeah, it is. Give me, give me... Why? Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing left we can do right now, I guess, is just get drunk, right? Yeah. I went. I went to the temple of Paylor. They were. Screams. Don't God. don't like, don't try to think about it, man. I I, I figured this is nobody think to come here. It looks like yeah. Yeah, it's just just you and me, man. Just you and me. Where, where is Sarah? What do you mean? Where, where is Sarah? Where's your wife? She's dead, man. How, how'd she die? She got taken by one of the monsters. Your wife, Sarah, got taken by one of the monsters? Yeah, like everybody else. No. I helped bury your wife three years ago. How am I gonna die? I think you know the answer to that. Don't you try. I'm Randall James, your, well, dead guy. Uh, with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. Good evening. And today we have a special guest, Ash. Hi. Uh, I'm Ash of Crit Fails. Um, we, uh, we also are a podcast of D&D uh, shenaniganery, I guess that's a word. <laughs> uh, not as professional as this podcast. It's more of us just like talking bullcrap about how we failed in our D&D campaigns. But please check us out. Uh, our Twitter's uh, at crit underscore fails. And you can find us on Spotify or iTunes or wherever nice, podcasts nice. are found. Awesome. Yeah, I think good we, to be we, here. Absolutely. It's good to have you. It's going to be great. Yeah, I think we definitely had our uh, case of fa- uh, case of failures uh, in the past. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, and we also we had we had Kobe on several yeah. weeks ago as well, mm-hmm. who's also from Crit Fails. Correct. So yeah, yeah. absolutely good to have more of the gang on. Yeah. Uh, so Tyler, what are we doing today? Uh, well, it's Spooktober. We're going to talk about horror. Nice. Ooh. And uh, th- this is a this is a challenging episode for me personally because horror is a place where I, both as a player and as a DM, struggle a whole lot. Mm. Uh, so I'm actually hoping to learn a lot from the rest of these fine folks on the podcast today. Nice. Yeah, this has been an episode I've been super excited about the whole time. So what are we on? We're uh, this is episode nine, the tenth episode. Is that right? I'm getting I'm getting some no, thumbs up. This is episode ten, the eleventh episode. Oh, okay. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. So this is episode <laughs> ten, the eleventh episode. Right, because we'll you guys have it. you guys have uh, episode zero, right? That... Absolutely. Yeah, oh, we do right. zero indexing here. It's the right thing to do. <laughs> no, that's, um, that's that's the proper uh, programming way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no Matlab users here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so we're uh, this is the third episode of Spooktober. 
uh, I have been looking forward to this for over a month since we first started talking about it, and I'm, I, I can't tell you how excited I am. Uh, I think probably a good way to start this conversation is to talk about what content does exist within 5th edition uh, that really brings the horror. So I think the first thing that everyone's going to think of in 5th edition D&D is going to be Ravenloft. Oh, yeah, uh, I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah, Ravenloft has uh, been kind of part of the D&D canon since 2nd edition um, with the original Castle Ravenloft module and now with uh, Curse of Strahd and Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. So the Gothic-style horror um, has been kind of a fixture in D&D for longer than I've been playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, let's see, the the most modern guidance on how to do a horror game is Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. And if you don't have a copy, uh, there is a section in the book that explains just how to run horror. It's pretty easy to overlook. It's only about six pages, starts on page 185, but it's actually really good uh, DM advice for how to run a horror game, Um, how to set expectations, how to respect boundaries, uh, how to make your game spooky while still making it fun. And, of course, there's always the challenges of how do you scare people in D&D. Yeah, I think to to dive a little bit further into this, right, The what it's really calling out is, like, you want the environment to be scary and spooky, and you want in the moment your players to to have the gratification of horror, but you don't want to make a player feel like, either personally attacked or, or essentially you don't want, you don't want it to be something that they take home at night and can't sleep that night. Uh, unless everybody at the table explicitly says that's exactly what they're looking for. And once again, we won't yuck your yum. Yeah. Party on. And, and so to, to figure out how to do that, I think it's really important to look at the types of fear. There's, there's different ways to scare people. And yeah. in the most basic, you're going to look at it as like, okay, well maybe I've experienced something being unsettling versus something being like a jump scare. And that that's that's a good place to look at it from the start, but there's actually like some real concrete definitions and some of these types of fear work better than others. So malaise, something just like kind of not right, kind of off in the back of your head. This is really like an what I like to think of as like uncanny valley. You walk into a town and you see only children at all, no adults. That's not the way a town's supposed to run. You know that that's not the way a town's supposed to run, but you can't figure out why. Also, children or, are creepy. Like, let's yeah, inherently, also, it's true. <laughs> also, like a good example of that is like Shadow of Rainsmith by H.P. Lovecraft. You know, the guy comes in, bunch of strange, fishy type of people, just a malevolent sort of vibe, right? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I, I had a, a module that I was interested in running through right quick just to talk about how we can, like, an example of bringing malaise. Do you folks want to do it? Sure. sure. All right, short, sweet. It won't take too long. Okay, so uh, imagine a setting where you're in a town, you don't know anybody in the town, and the town is kind of far out in the middle of nowhere. No one even knew this town was here, and yet you find yourself in a room with a bunch of the townsfolk. Okay. Uh, you're in a room. The room is aged but elegant with solid plank flooring, the molding is intricate but aging and dirty. A fire crackles in the hearth, providing the only light in the room. Uh, there are shelves on each side uh, of the fire lined with books. The men and women are dressed oddly. You only thought that it's as if someone described to a poor tailor the modern style of dress clothing, fine clothing, and this is what this is what they come with. They talk quietly amongst themselves, ignoring you except for short accusatory glances. Rule perception. Nobody has dice on them, right? Boop. Clatter, 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 clatter. So what happens when you have everybody in the room roll dice, right? Somebody's going to break 10. You know, you can call that a success. You can nod happily and you can keep going with it. Although it's late in the day, the men in the room appear to be freshly shaved. Uh, maybe to another person. You notice the books on the shelves have no words on the binding. They appear to be sorted by color. Before you can decide what to do, uh, all heads snap to look at an open doorway. A second goes by. Two seconds. Three seconds. A woman enters dressed like the others. The room returns, talking in their quiet circles. Yeah, that's okay, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely heading towards spooky, but I almost feel like like that's even a great segue. That doesn't really read like 
vaguely not right because you're in a specific situation. You're in this room. You're surrounded by these people who are explicitly aware of your presence. That honestly almost starts hitting more like anxiety. Now, anxiety is one of the great things that, as a DM, you have a lot of tools to build. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, just, like, a few things that I have come across and done, and one thing that I'm, I'm going to touch on real quick, humans love pattern recognition. We're actually too good at it. This is where you get these medieval stories of superstitions about, like, oh, it's a comet, I need to sacrifice three goats or I'm going to have a bad harvest. That immediate desire for pattern recognition is what makes malaise and uh to some extent anxiety possible preying on that is how you're going to be able to generate the the these sorts of fears in your players really well so pattern recognition right as players when we see our dm do something that we can see we expect it to be meaningful and sometimes that's just I'm going to roll a handful of dice behind my screen and not tell you what I'm doing. The answer is scaring you. It has no mechanical effect. But just roll some dice. Um, take a sand timer, like a five-minute sand timer, if you can find one, and just casually set it out in front of the players as they're talking. Don't tell them anything. But at, at the at the end of it, though, then roll the dice again and like... <sighs> you know, um, it's interesting that you bring up uh, the idea of pattern recognition when it comes to horror, because I think that that is true um, in different ways. People can have anxiety in a pattern when they recognize a dangerous situation, sort of like they're in a dark hallway. Nothing good ever happens in a dark hallway. I think also you can exploit that a little bit to humans because we are so addicted to patterns and pattern recognition. When there is no discernible pattern, the pattern doesn't make sense. That is also a form of anxiety. And that's what make co- makes cosmic horror such a thing. And that's why H.P. Lovecraft is this thing. Is like you trying to find patterns in what I'm creating is the reason why you're doomed and uh, the reason why you will never understand. It's the whole idea of man was not meant to know certain things. I think one of the things to add to that is right, like a running gag that I'm sure folks have heard of, right, is putting an obvious timer in a setting mm-hmm. where – that's obviously a problem that I'm supposed to solve. And so you have player characters scrambling, trying to find a solution because obviously like I, I hit the button thinking it would open the door. Instead, the timer started and I don't know what's going to happen when the timer stops. And then when the timer stops, the door opens and that was it. That was all that was going to happen the whole time. But as player characters, it's, it's hugely anxiety inducing because you think I have to do something. And obviously I only have so long to do that thing. I think that time-based anxiety is a, that can be a really effective but difficult tool to use, uh, since RPGs are typically like turn-based in a lot in in cases where time matters. Uh, it's usually in a turn order. Using time as a as a way to produce anxiety seems difficult, but I mean it, it obviously works. Yeah, the sand timer thing would drive me nuts. So there, I think there's two pieces of this, right? There's the the meta for the players. Uh, and I, I think you're right. Like, if you're trying to do something in the real world time-based, it's going to be hard because that's not the nature of the game. But if you can bring the time into the world of the player characters, I think that's where you can really have success. You know, so if, if the timer is obviously, uh, you know... Uh, roll survival, roll something, you get a good rollback, and you say, uh, you get the feeling it's going to expire in about a minute. What does that say? That says they have 10 rounds to do whatever they're going to do, which in which case, don't make it a minute. Make it 18 seconds, because, you know, uh, dear God. Yeah, so there is, as a human, there's nothing scarier than the concept of time itself. Um, That's the enemy of everything. But uh, you you say that it is difficult to bring in time mechanics into D&D. I I disagree. I think there are ways that you can do it. And some of the ways that you can do it, you just have to look at other systems, really. Like, uh, there is this system in... um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Blades in the Dark, but uh, they have this time dice, and based on, like, certain actions that you take, it reduces the time dice. So that still gives you the freedom of the, you know, um, turn-based sort of structure, but it also has the ticking clock mechanic, so that it's sort of half real-time, half not. The other way that you can kind of do it is have a pressing, without, like, having an actual timer, have a pressing thing that's going to be happening and people know that they have to get there 
but they have to decide whether it's worth it to press on and maybe risk exhaustion or something bad or just let whatever bad's going to happen, you know? So you can definitely do in-world time or, or IRL time. And if you're going to do something like I was talking about with the timer, don't try to do it in combat. Just do it during exploration. That's, you know, yeah. if, if, if trying to enforce real-world time on turn-based combat is absolutely difficult. And I guess technically speaking, possible, but I wouldn't even try. Now, one interesting thing that time-based anxiety is really good for, and particularly it's like what Randall talked about, if you just keep people anxious, they will become inured to it pretty quickly. And so just like any other story, you need tension release, tension release. Doing something like a timer that then just, you know, counts down, scares people, and then opens the door they were trying to open anyway, superb. That is a great way to have some anxiety for a while, give them a release, and then, you know, make them possibly even, like, more afraid of, oh, God, you know, what is it going to be next time? Something like that, really good, really good way to get that going. That is an excellent point. And I think the other thing that you can do with time is that sometimes you don't, you just, you don't need to show people the timer. You just need to tell them that there is a timer but you don't tell them when it's going to end. And that in and of itself can cause a lot of anxiety because it goes back to the sort of pattern recognition that humans like. We like to know, okay, we have this much time to do a thing. If we don't know how much time we have, suddenly all of our priorities become skewed. One thing I'm going to say definitely, that's a great way to go. Uh, A thing that you might want to do to avoid triggering frustration instead of fear is if you go that route make sure that their penalty for failure isn't something that's actually all that negative um mm. you know don't don't give people an unknown tire and then like oh you're dead lel um because that's <laughs> that's not gonna end well for anybody that's right not a good story. obviously you want to you want to have it have a, a way out and you don't want to just punish people for not knowing what the t- how long the timer was but even just having an arbitrary time limit and them not knowing can push them to make decisions they normally wouldn't otherwise. But yeah, I think you're right. You got to be careful not to just be like, figure it out or you're dead. Because <laughs> yeah. that's not fun for anyone. Well, and, and you talk about like pushing them into that anxiety. And I think uh, probably the hardest part about doing this kind of storytelling versus a, a typical game is reading the room, right? Getting a feeling for like, okay. How anxious are you? Should I pop this cork and let a little relief, or do I need to keep building? Uh, and I think managing like the velocity. So we've talked about um, malaise and anxiety, and I think we're going to move on to the deeper feelings in a second. But you know, managing it's like okay, you know, I've got you up to the top of anxiety, you know, almost to like our next feeling, which you know, spoiler dread. Um, let me pop it open, all right? So like the the knob was jiggling, and you heard scratching at the door. And then the door opened and it was the caretaker holding a rake and everybody's like, oh, okay, good. It's the caretaker. And then something eats his head. Like that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's exciting. classic. That's classic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but it's classic because it works. Right? Yeah, no, People, it does. You, you get built up, you get built up, you feel relief and you're like, oh, okay, oh, wait, wait, what's that? It, it, no head, no head, you know, roll initiative. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Well, one last thing I do want to touch on before we get past anxiety for for another. Um, well, concrete... We're never going to get past anxiety. I want to be very clear. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm anxious this entire podcast. So if you can't tell, uh, so a, another just like specific thing you can do to to build anxiety just as a you know not time based thing. People are wandering through. You know, if they're exploring something, you've set them in a spooky area. It's hard to see. Which, by the way, light. Um, yeah, long-time listeners will know that I was in a very long Strahd game. One of the things that the DM said at the outset is, look, I am going to make light a very focused part of how we are playing this because not everyone has dark vision. And even those who do have dark vision, you're seeing in black and white in... Well, okay, that's that's more 3.5. But you're, you're seeing as if it were low light. Using light to good advantage... And don't be afraid to chuck some magical darkness in there, even if it doesn't make sense. Like, here's an item. It creates magical darkness. Why? Because I wanted the plot to do that. That's one thing. And then also, like, as you are exploring these scenarios, again, triggering the, the pattern recognition and people wanting to have their thing, roll perception. Or have, have your players roll perception. Don't tell them anything. 
just like give a very ex- like explicit description of where they are try to lead them on a bit like oh yeah nope um man you find this thing and this thing and this thing and you know have them feel like they're missing something yeah I, I, be careful with that one too because that can lead to frustration no you, you missed it and then roll right on into your next story beat so that you have some stuff built yeah I, I feel like for a lot of these tools and and let's let's take this idea of like I give you this detailed prescri- or description of the room including you know the the frame that was slightly crooked and the desk with the door that's slightly ajar and on and on and on like I almost say as a DM like have a checklist next to you and when you've used that trick once for the night or twice for the night Let's not do that anymore because it it will become frustrating, but you can put enough of these tools together that in the right moment, you know, okay, I know that this is an anxiety inducer and right now I need an anxiety inducer. So where are my anxiety inducers? Okay. What do I got? Rolling behind the curtain and overly describing the pink curtains. Those are the tools in my bag. Now, how much of that is delivery? The, the tools all make sense, but me as a person who just like, I don't engage in horror as a like subset of media in general. How much of that is just delivery by the DM? Like Randall, your module that you read us earlier, um, like the description was very spooky. I felt a little anxious and was like, okay, there's something spooky going on here. If I, as a DM read that same text, the delivery would be very different. People in like, They've heard of fashion type clothing. It's just like, oh, okay, these are just people who don't get fashion. Books that are sorted by color. It's oh, these people have an interior decorator who bought them books by color. That's a thing that happens in real life. Like that, like all of that seemed mostly normal, except the delivery sold me on the horror. Like how much of how much of all of this is just I as the DM am successfully using these tools. So I'll, I'll, I'll challenge that, and I'll say that I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, RPG Pod. Uh, I think in order to do this, right, like if everybody was laughing and having a good time and, and everybody just thought this was a joke and I delivered that the same way that I just delivered it, people would still treat it like a joke. I wouldn't be able to build anxiety and the story wouldn't work. I think the most important thing is having a group of players who are excited about the adventure you're about to go on, you know, what we say all the time, right, the collective storytelling that we're about to do. And I think if you have those players with you, I think you could deliver that and absolutely give them the goosebumps. I think, you, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, and the thing is, is that you say that it's all about delivery, but that's most of exposition in D&D. All of it is about delivery. How do you deliver an awesome moment if your players don't really buy into it or you yourself don't try to evoke those emotions? Horror requires a certain delivery, something that, like the module that Randall read, if he read it, it, like he's right, if he read it in a comical voice or people were treating it as like a joke, it would be like, you know, a scary movie. It's a, a scary movie does the same things that a lot of horror movies do. They just do it in a comical fashion. Um, and that's that's just their shtick. So yeah, I think horror more than any other genre requires you to set a mood. It requires ambience. It requires you to deliver it in a way that unnerves people. A hundred percent. And then, you know, not taking it into absurdity. Uh, Cause as soon as you take like the anxiety into absurdity, then you, I think you do lose the room. Uh, and, and I'll bring up like, what if you have one player who's giggling, laughing, not taking it seriously? You know, I'll, I'll again, I'll steal a phrase from random. I think you try the social correction, pull them aside, say, hey, look, we all kind of wanted to come together for this. I Can you kind of get into the game and try to keep this a little bit more serious this session? Um, and if it's the whole campaign, is this really a campaign that person wants to be a part of? Or if you want to be a bad DM, you just say, hey, you laughed so much and the goblin, the, the monster killed you first. So congratulations. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> the, uh, the social fix versus the mechanical fix. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> No, that's that's attempt two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Roll. Oh no, you failed your death save. I don't. I don't know. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry. You don't even. I don't get a saving throw. No, he just did bites your head off. I'm sorry. No. Can you give me your character sheet now? Bye. We're, Bye. we're gonna we're gonna burn it. <laughs> You've built this malaise. You've built this anxiety. What do you do with it? And uh, you know, Randall did a great job saying you transition it to dread. Dread is more like 
I know that something is coming for me. This is the, I am being chased by the serial killer. I am sliding down into the Silent Hill basement. Something is very immediately bad about to happen to me. Yeah, if if I don't jump out of this uh, building through a tiny tube that I barely fit into, I'm going to burn in the fire. So I have to jump in the tube. For me personally, that induces significant dread. This is where I feel like D&D lacks a bit in terms of making chases compelling. Uh, the chase mechanics and the DM's guide, I'm just going to say it, they're bad. They're not good. They're, they're like good for maybe an Indiana Jones thing. They're just not very good for horror. If you want an idea of what a good system is and a system that I've used in the past for D&D, take a look at the Call of Cthulhu chase systems. Those are really well done. So how does that work? So the way it works is um, you have a series of nodes on a line. You can either pre-plan it or you can roll it randomly for each node. Uh, But basically you have on each node maybe an obstacle. Each monster has a sort of speed initiative based on like a number of factors like their dexterity and stuff like that based on how how high their dexterity and stuff is they get to move a certain number of nodes per turn and you can do certain things to like slow or increase that based on the actions that you take using the abilities at your disposal or your environment so let's say you're being chased by a monster down a hall and the first node has a locked door so now you have a choice to make you can bust down the door to get through the node fast, but it also leaves the door open for the monster chasing you. Or you can try to quit, if you're good enough and you think you have it down, you can try to quickly pick the lock. It might take you a little bit of time and the monster may gain a node or two on you, depending on how good your check is. You get through the door and that gives you the opportunity to bar it on the other side, thus creating an obstacle for the monster chasing you. So now he has an obstacle that he has to overcome once he reaches that node. Okay, now what if the monster is a lock-picking monster? <laughs> if it's a lock-picking monster, then yeah. no. uh, But most monsters just try to bust through things. Um, but, yeah, uh, that is, that, that's just one example. And it's one that I've used in, because I'm currently running a, a survival horror sort of D&D as my main campaign. And uh, it, it works really well. If, you, if you're dissatisfied with the DMG's way of doing chases, I recommend giving the Call of Cthulhu chase things a try. It is a bit more complicated, but that complexity comes with depth. Yeah, that sounds so, way more satisfying, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, so that's an interesting point you bring up, and I think that this is maybe something that just like a, a quick tangent as you were talking about where delivery is such an important thing and, and buy-in is such an important thing, I, I think horror in particular as a game genre is something that you're really going to want to prepare more for than just your standard swords and sorcery, power fantasy, let's be uh, four wizards murdering through the countryside. Because it, because it is so immersion-based, anytime you break that immersion you're going to be losing a lot of what you've built. You know, if you are keeping these your players on a good, like, tension release of anxiety, dread, and then back, having to take even a couple minutes to look through your notes is going to really kind of draw people out. Now, I'm not saying that if you, that you need to set everything up ahead of time, that you need to be the best, whatever. It just, that is something to be conscious of that, if you are going to try and run a session or, you know, a, an arc, a more horror than than other genres, tr- be aware that that immersion is a huge factor, and that you know if you are going to plan it, you know, if you are going to try and run this, have it planned like this, uh, you know, like Ashford was talking about with this called Cthulhu thing, um, or even if you are going to try and and I will admit I chose you know something chasing you just randomly i had no idea there were rules for that in the dmg yeah great fascinating (laughs) Um, (laughs) give it a look give it a look see what you think maybe you'll agree with me maybe you'll disagree but yeah so yeah that that that's sort of like uh or i really like what randall was talking about like 
here is an immediate lose-lose situation, right? Like it, it, any sort of jump into this claustrophobic tube or burn to death, right? Yeah, that's something like that. I think either of those are going to be really good ways. And Dread is hard because even if something is chasing you, which, you know, in Call of Cthulhu, it makes a lot more sense because you're just a human and these things are uh, cyclopean. I'm going to get stabbed for using that word, but such is life. <laughs> you know, they're meant to kill you. Yeah. In D&D, monsters aren't really meant to kill you. Making them scary, you kind of have to go back to some of those tricking your players things. Particularly any veteran players, they're going to look at a monster and they're going to go, oh, yes, I know what this monster does. And so you need to come up with something that they don't expect. Yeah. Um, because I've been fighting, like, ah, a tree blight has walked out of the forest. He's going to kill me. And... You know, someone says, ah, it's a tree. I'm going to light it on fire. You light the tree on fire, it gets angrier. Now it's on fire and coming at you on fire rather than, you know, it being typically vulnerable to fire like somebody might expect. That sort of reversal can build some really immediate dread even in combat. I, I think that that sort of making your monsters do unexpected things is the way to bring some of that back in when killing monsters is sort of a big focus. Or just make new monsters. And I think that's actually the right answer, right? So uh, hashtag monsterizer. Uh, <laughs> you, you can always take a, a monster and reskin it. Uh, and with the tool that's on our RPGbot.net, the monsterizer, um, you can truly customize it. And if you need to like level something up or level something down, you know, somebody says, it's like, ah, you know, I'm obviously way too high of a level to be worried about this treant that is coming towards me. And then they get into combat and the first time they take a hit, they're like, oh, never mind. I was wrong. And I am in danger. And that's the that's the big thing about D and D, and why I think it is hard to do horror effectively. Just coming at it from a regular mindset, is D and D at least fifth edition is a power fantasy. And with horror, the way horror is effective is you need to feel powerless. And the way I've done it in in the survival campaign is I just I make fights literally unfair for my players. I'm like. And I go from the outset saying, don't get attached to your characters because they very well may die. And it is often in your better interest to run from a battle than to fight it, which is a concept that takes some getting used to in D&D because you're not used to running from fights. But I think if you're going to do horror effectively, fighting should be your last resort. It should yeah, I... not be the first thing that you go to. I think that's huge. And I think that's something you say in kind of a session zero, right? Like, many if not most of the encounters you're going to have uh you are not meant to take the encounter like full frontal yeah exactly so in the in when you did castle ravenloft random w you know did you go into most combat and engage in combat every single time you ran into a monster or was there a lot of you know running away hiding using trickery while it was in a spooky setting and and the gothic horror was very strong and my dm did a really superb job selling us on it. In general, it, it's still 5th edition, right? It, it, okay. it wasn't really modified 5th edition. It is a pre-written Wizards of the Coast module, so it's intended to be played like straight 5th edition. Now, with that said, uh, we absolutely had encounters that beat us, um, either because we... If you have looked through, you may know that Death House is intended to be sort of a prequel to Curse of Strahd, oh, if you want to do that. Death um, House is awful. <laughs> one of the great things about Death House is, so, because you start at level one, you do kind of hit on that powerless end, and so you can have Death House actually feel like horror because me and my ten hit points are all that's standing between, you know, this character horribly dying, turning into a ghost. With that uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned this when we were talking about in the uh, the skill feats episode. Two of us died in, for, in the final boss of the Death House. That felt totally fair and also horrifying. Um, you know, that, that was just, oh, there's my friend who I've been traipsing through this god-awful plane with for a week and a half, impaled on a wheel. Great. Hmm. As things went on, it really did become much more of a standard D&D &D game. That's fine. You know, the, you can still use the spooky setting and use that to build narrative engagement and still have it be a typical power fantasy 5th edition game. That's good, too. And I think Van Richten covers some of this. You can also use other parts of Ravenloft 
to do other scary things apart from just your typical gothic horror. Um, and, you know, in particular, uh, if you pick up Wild Beyond the Witchlight and you mash those two things together, oh, <laughs> that's all kinds of spooky. Uh, and <laughs> I would recommend that's some good stuff. Nice. Creepy carnivals are always where it's at, man. I yeah. love creepy carnivals. More people are afraid of clowns than vampires. Oh, yeah, no. yeah. Number one fear in the United States, clowns. Number two, spiders. It's um, the one session that I've always wanted to run is a creepy carnival. I was going to run it in one of my campaigns, but then that campaign died. So, But eventually I will get to do something like that. So yeah. this, is, this is kind of neat. Um, and... Give me 30 seconds to spoil something from Wild Beyond the Witchlight. Uh, Van Richten's Guide has a carnival that's mentioned in Van Richten's Guide. Uh, it's the Spooky Shadowfell Carnival, and the people that originally ran that carnival are featured in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. So if you go read Van Richten's and then read Wild Beyond the Witchlight, like intending to run it, hopefully, you'll be like, ah, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, actually, I not I'm I'm not gonna say anything other than I thought that that tie-in and that story was really cool when I read it. I like it how a lot of uh, uh, WOTC's um, like supplements kind of feed off of each other, so that's really cool. Yeah. So I yeah we're, we're talking about right. What, what have we just said? We've said that it's okay if you play uh, like a power-driven fifth edition D and D session in a horror or a spooky setting. Oh yeah, no. But today's I, episode is about actually executing the horror. Um, and, and so we we were talking about dread and like how do we bring in dread? And, and I think everybody nailed it, right? Like when you have super powerful creature or super powerful player characters, or even moderately powerful player characters, if they go into a fight, uh, unfortunately in fifth edition, either you have overpowered that fight to the point where they are likely going to lose. In which case, that's not going to induce dread. It's just going to induce frustration because you as a DM have put them in a situation, made them think they should fight, and then they died. The, the alternative is saying, look, you need to run, you know, session zero, you need to run from a lot of fights. If you don't think, if you're not 100% confident that you can win, don't engage, find a way out, and then run your session that way. Where if they test you, push them back. You know, maybe it's maybe a, a PC just has to fall, but their backup cousin was sitting in a closet, and so you brought him out and... Put, put them into the game. But there's a lot of ways that we can induce dread. Uh, one, one thing that I love leveraging is if you can in- introduce a pet early on, right? Here's an NPC, and how adorable is this NPC? Oh, no. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know where this is going, you heartless monster. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's super powerful because they're not going to feel dread for themselves because they know in combat they can take care of themselves. But if you put them in a combat situation or uh, like a skill challenge type situation where something might happen to the deer NPC, they're going to do their best to rescue and they're going to feel the anxiety and the dread that something bad might actually happen. I, I like that idea. Um, so I, I spent some time researching for this episode because I was woefully underprepared. Um, the uh, third edition supplement Heroes of Horror uh, is kind of like the third edition equivalent to Van Richten's Guide, but instead of focusing on Ravenloft, it focuses on just horror more generally. Um, Random, you will probably remember this is the book that gave us The Archivist. Uh, <laughs> also Dread Necromancer. Also Dread Necromancer. Yeah, there's some cool stuff in there. Uh, Dread Necromancer. So, so Van Richten's guide has like five or six pages on how to run a horror game and they're very dense and they're very good. And I recommend that you read them. Uh, Heroes of horror has 85 pages on how to run a horror game. So in terms of sheer page count, there's way more ideas in heroes of horror. But the question is, is it quality or is it just quantity? A bit of both. Um, some, <laughs> some of it is really good ideas. Um, a lot of that is filled in with like examples of, of like, here's how to do this one thing in horror. And then here's like two or three pages of an example of how you would do this. So, like, here's an encounter. Here's an adventure. Here's a stat block for a villain that you're going to face. Um, and of course, the stat blocks are going to be totally useless unless you're already familiar with the third edition rule set. But um, there are still a lot of good ideas in there. So Heroes of Horror on DMs Guild, go pick it up. Hmm. I had a whole point to this that I was going to circle back to. Oh, it was the uh, picking on the NPCs. Uh, that is one of the things that they recommended in there. Um, basically, uh, ha- like 
because you can't threaten the players very much with direct action, like the monsters aren't a threat to the players. If a fight goes badly, they'll just teleport away, whatever. So you go and threaten their friends, their family, their, their pets. Um, and as long as, as long as no one came to the table with, uh, my backstory is my entire family is dead and I have no friends that can work. Ah, yes. The Sasuke Uchiha defense. Um, jeez. Uh, well, so it's, you talk about Heroes of Horror, and Descent into Avernus, actually, uh, is something that I've been playing recently. Um, and while we're here, so let's talk about mechanics that actually revolve around fear. 5e has sanity rules, um, which are really neat. They actually feel a whole lot like 3.x's sanity rules. Basically, you fail a save, something bad happens for a little bit, you have one layer of madness. If you encounter madness again, you fail another save. Now something bad is going to happen for like a week to you. So what are what are the kinds of things that would potentially raise your level of madness? Uh, well, so spoilers for anyone who may play Descent into Avernus at some point. Very early on, as like a level three character, Demogorgon appears and just wrecks a village that you run away from because they're Demogorgon and don't care about three, you know, about a party of level three people running away. Um, so that, or, you know, there are in pre-written modules like this one, there are several things that explicitly trigger, like here's what's going to be something scary. You know, maybe it's a cavern full of uh, gibbering mouthers and they're just horrifying because they're whispering things that unnerve you or whatever the case may be. So these are things that you can put to use to have a mechanical effect on the characters as opposed to just affecting the players. You know, eventually the third level, if you fail, the third level is permanent. Um, you, your character now just has, like, a phobia or uh, a tick or something, some permanent impression from the fear that the character has experienced. And so winding that in can be a really good tool and while we're talking about 3.x, Rise of the Rune Lords game that Tyler has talked about me running for him, there is a whole section where you go investigate a literal haunted house. And Pathfinder had these rules for haunts, and they are super cool. You could very easily port them in. Basically, if a room is haunted, when you walk in, you get a perception check to maybe notice it's haunted. You have a much higher perception check to figure out what will trigger the haunt to occur. And then the haunt can be anything from... It, it, it's functionally a trap. It plays out like a haunted house, like a haunted area. And, y you know, you're not able to disarm it like a trap because it's ghosts. So, you know, there's actual rules for how do I exercise a house, for instance. Cleric plus holy water? What's... Yeah, there you uh, go. I, I mean... There's some nuance plus to lock it. Pick. Just... <laughs> the, the short answer is it's not something that the players are expected to be able to do by themselves. Okay. That's one of the, the other cool things, and I, I would recommend reading up on those if you want to try and bring in actual mechanical fear instead of just building the ambiance. So I, I do want to say, I think that is interesting to me, but if you if you engage in the sanity rules or you bring something like the haunts in, but you're not attempting to build anxiety. You're not trying to build that anticipation. I feel like it can feel hollow. And if, if that's the game everybody's coming to play, that's that can be fun. It would be great. But if folks are coming for horror, I almost feel like everything you do has to be attempting to affect the player first and the player character through them. Talking about uh, the insanity mechanics. It's interesting when you bring that up because I... Uh... My hot take is I don't like the insanity mechanics for 5e. I think they're kind of boring, personally speaking. But uh, if you want a better system, one that I can recommend that actually has been tuned for 5e is there's this uh, independent author, I forget his name, is Peter something. He wrote Cthulhu Mythos for 5e, and he created his own insanity system, which I've been using, and it's, it's pretty interesting. Basically, you have seven levels of dread. Seven, I can count. Seven levels of dread. And uh, each dread level is like how, how far gone your fear is. 
um, and they have different detrimental mechanical effects. Like maybe uh, you have to roll to get closer to the object of your fear and stuff like that. Once you reach four levels of dread, then you get into insanity. And there, there are less insanity like conditions. Like the way it works in 5e is like you get a flaw for your character. Like permanent sanity conditions are basically like a flaw for your character. For these, there's less of those. It's like paranoia, schizophrenia, amnesia, other stuff. And it has like seriously detrimental effects um, depending on what you're running. Like some of them are brutal. Like amnesia, you lose all your class levels basically. Then you're reduced to level one until you get your amnesia fixed. Um, and you basically just start from scratch. One thing that I added to that system is if you, at a certain point, once you reach a certain level of insanity, because of the world that uh, the game takes place in, you have a possibility of meeting what is called the rapture, which is uh, a living embodiment of your own fears and insanity. And it's sort of like a living shadow that you basically have to fight against or you just become an insane husk of a person. And people, because the world takes place in a world that's always in night, people call it dark madness. Like people go into the darkness and they go mad. And so using that kind of stuff to really sort of making, I don't know if I, I want to say torture is the right word, but maybe a little bit of torturing your players with some brutal mechanics can really sort of bring in the fear of like, rather than just an inconvenience or something they just have to like, you know, live with now. That's like, oh, this completely changes my character and I don't want this to happen. I have to manage my stress levels. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it, in my mind, what would make that most powerful would be in session zero, pulling up the chart oh, yeah. and, and mm -hmm. saying, that, you know, step by step, this is what it is. This is how it is. Here's a couple canned examples of ways that your dread level or your sanity level might go up. And this probably works for either system, mm -hmm. but almost over-exaggerating how much you don't want this to happen. Yeah. Not because the consequences are drastic, but because you've you've hopefully put it into their head that when this happens, it is bad. And therefore, it is going to help induce anxiety. I guess in, in either system... Part of the takeaway I'm taking, uh, both from Random, what you described, Ash, what you've described, is whatever your world, just put things in the world and say this increases your insanity or this increases your yeah. dread, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were already, you know, uh, go back to my fire versus claustrophobia thing, right? Like, whichever one you choose, I'm going to say that this increases your insanity level because, as a character, this is something that uh, we've agreed you're worried about or I'm, I'm telling you you're worried about. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Another thing you can do going off of that is uh, if you're planning to run a horror game, ask your players this very simple question. What is your character's greatest fear? And then use it against them. And, and we'll balance that with, though, having, having that session zero, the, the you know, lines and veils, basically. Like, what are, what are the things that you as, a, you as a human being sitting in front of me do not want to talk about? And don't make that your character's greatest fear, because otherwise I'm going to leverage it. Yeah, it, with horror and stuff like this, it's always important to establish like lines that are unacceptable to cross for your players. Like, okay, we're not going to cross these lines. These are our like hard set rules, because you don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Yeah, nobody should have to use a safe word during D and D. That's what I always yeah, say. Exactly. <laughs> um, so if I can just touch on some safety tools there, real quick. Uh, Randall, you mentioned lines and veils, which is an excellent safety tool in RPGs. Um, for people unfamiliar, a line is a hard line that the game shall never cross. So if you say like this, this subject is a hard line for me. That that line should never be crossed within the game. Well, and veil, to give it Real quick, I mean, to give a classic, a, a very serious example, uh, you might have somebody at the table who says, never hurt children, or no yeah. children, period. Like, we're going to have or, a horror game. Do not bring them in. As a, as a DM or as a, a GM, honor that 100%. Yeah, and, like, me and Colby ran an evil game, and one of the things we started out was, these are the few lines we're not going to cross, and one of those is, like, we're not going to do sexual assault because that's just not okay, and that's not something that we want to bring into our games, stuff like that. Yeah, 100%. Uh, there, are, there are just lines that people are here to have fun. I know that the world is shitty. You don't need to remind <laughs> them that the world is shitty. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, so good examples of lines, but you had one more. 
Yeah, so veils are a little bit softer. Uh, so a veil is something that you're okay being in the game, but you don't want it specifically described. So that's a like fade to black moment. So, if, so for me, real world example, terrified of spiders. Um, I would probably declare spiders as a veil in a game. Like if someone were to be, or if if the DM were to say like, and your character is covered in a mountain of spiders, uh, oh, I would uh, I would be super not okay with that. And yet somehow random managed to run the demon web pits for me one time. <laughs> By the you, way, you walked right into it. Also that afraid of spiders. Yeah. It wasn't a good time for either of us. No, <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't that tell. module. In defense of him, you can't tell him something like that and not expect him to use it. Come on, that's what. That's why you use lines and veils because it's it's an easy target, but there has to be a line. Um, so for me, veils. If someone, if the DM were to say, "Hey, spiders happen," and I and I had established that as a veil, DM says spiders happen, fade to black. I'd be like, okay, I personally am and my character. We are both now terrified. I'm sold on the horror. I've bought it. (laughs) But I appreciate that I was not... I did not have to listen to a verbal description of spiders existing. Yeah. So your wife has to kill spiders for you, huh? Uh, Oh, gosh. No. um, We we got cats because we were told that cats would hunt bugs. Oh, yeah, I could have told you that. I mean, come on, man. No, don't get cats for that. They they will never do that for you. I have a cat, and she, we had roaches when we were in Savannah, and she would, she would like bat it around, but she wouldn't like kill it or anything. To be clear, that's actually pro cat propaganda put out by the cats. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, so the cats didn't work out. So now we just have a really good exterminator. Well, to be clear, they kept the cats. Like, the, the cats didn't work out oh. for killing spiders. The cats yeah, are still they, loved. They didn't serve their purpose. They're gone. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yeah, the, my cat appeared on the uh, the previous bonus episode, if you listen very carefully. Yeah. I see also Dan has a cat in his lap right now. <laughs> Producer Dan, office full of cats. Always at time. He's, yep. he, he's the perfectly sane cat fella. <laughs> So, so what, what, have, what have we done? What have we talked through? Uh, we've talked about the roller coaster of emotion we want people to experience. We started with malaise. We want people to be uneasy. We want folks to know that the world isn't quite right, but not be able to put their finger on it. Not understand why. Not understand the negative that's going to come with it. We want folks to feel anxiety. Uh, we want them to be worried about the unknown consequences or outcomes that are in front of them. Because uh, that's what anxiety is, right? Like, we're anxious because... We don't know what's going to go wrong. Just it never goes right for me. So surely this is going to be bad. You know, that's an easy assumption. We want to build that into dread, which is anticipation of a negative near-term outcome that is going to be bad for my character and potentially bad for me, like spiders. <laughs> like spiders. Like spiders. And and we've talked about a lot of great tools for building this. And and I think the biggest thing that we've, like my takeaway from our conversation, is that we need the players to experience this. If the goal is horror, if the goal is to induce dread and to get that endorphin rush that we all enjoy when we sit and we watch a scary movie, if we're into that, we need to have the players have that experience more than we need the player characters to have that experience. Uh, yeah, no, and I think that that is definitely key difference between horror and just like anxiety inducing situation in a normal fantasy game because like it's easy to scare players it's hard to uh, player characters it's hard to scare players yeah 100 percent. but there's tools for it uh i think we, we've talked about some cool ways that you could do this within the rule set of uh fifth edition uh and certainly bringing things from other rule sets and leveraging them to kind of play in your fifth edition game so you don't have to have everybody flip to a brand new rule set just to have maybe one arc or one session uh definitely makes sense but on the other hand there's a lot of great content out there if you want it to play uh so one that we talked about already is call of cthulhu um it right looks fantastic i think it actually would be something i'd be pretty interested in it's a lot of fun you should give it a try no definitely uh we talked about death house we talked about ravenloft uh one that we haven't talked about is the 10 candles rpg yeah uh so this this is an indie rpg from cavalry games that came out a couple of years ago uh it's it is a horror one-shot game like that is the premise of the game 
Um, you play the game sitting around a table in a room lit only by 10 real-world tea lights. And the mechanic of the game is over the course of the game, you will gradually extinguish those tea lights. And the game ends when all 10 lights are out, at which point all of the characters die. And that is the expectation you go in. You go into the game with that expectation. Everyone is going to die at the end of this one-shot. And the characters in the game know that they are about to die. They are essentially looking for hope in the last few horrifying hours of their existence. Um, and everything I've heard about it has been absolutely wonderful, and I've been too scared to read it. So definitely have to check that out. Is it, we, we should actually just play it sometime. I think that's the answer. I feel like that's a good answer. It would probably be good for me. <laughs> yeah, cathartic, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tyler, do we have a question of the week this week? We do have a question of the week. Uh, I even wrote it down. And here it is. Okay, so this comes from Cursed Kenku on Twitter. Do you think 5e will eventually rework the once-per-rest mechanics in favor of X per proficiency bonus? That's a very specific rework they're calling can you, out. Uh, can you repeat that question? Yeah. Do you think 5th edition will eventually rework once-per-rest mechanics in favor of X number of times per proficiency bonus? So I think they're referring to... Uh, more recent mechanics, which started started appearing in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, where like a class would have, I can do this thing a number of times per day equal to my proficiency bonus. And as we've seen, yeah. So uh, in my opinion, uh, will we see a rework? Probably in the uh, the twenty twenty four next evolution of D anD. Uh, yeah, I'm really curious as to time. what that is. Yeah, uh, there's supposed to be some announcements this month, and uh, oh, cool. we're recording this episode before we get those announcements, unfortunately. But uh, look for look for news about that in the podcast feed soon. But I get the feeling when it comes out, we're probably going to talk about it. Oh, of yeah, most yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and I, I I agree. I mean, I think that it is a much so it's a great way to keep it as a limited number of uses per day without you know trying to balance around something like how many short rests a party might take while still give you more than just once because a lot of things at, at only once per day can feel really not impactful. Yeah. Um, but, you know, particularly one of my favorite instances of these is um, Flash of Genius off the Artificer. It is incredibly satisfying to use. It is always impactful. And, you know, you're going to get it somewhere between... Uh, I think you. by the time you get it, you're already proficiency bonus three. So you're going to get it somewhere between three and six times a day. And that's enough to feel like maybe that's once per fight or, you know, maybe that's I'm going to use it a couple times in this really critical social encounter with the king of the realm or whatever. I think that they're definitely going to start heading that direction because it is much more satisfying because once per day you sort of run into that problem of like, ah, yes, I've got this potion in the tutorial. I'm never going to use it because I have one potion and I can't use it, I obviously, yeah. because what if I need it and I don't have it? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then uh, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, divide, uh, what is it? Um, it's um, uh, the, the, the feature that clerics get. I can't remember the name. Channel, Channel. Channel Divinity. Thank you. They get an absolutely pitiful number of uses out of it. It's only like max two. It which, is per short rest. Uh, especially for so it is per short rest. That is true, but especially for clerics, some of them have like really situational channel divinity uses, and you're gonna be like, I don't want to use it in case I can't get a short rest in. Like I've played clerics before, and I think I've used my channel divinity like very rarely because I'm always like, no, I gotta save it for this next thing. I don't know. I think like Channel Divinity could probably benefit from a proficiency bump. So I'll, I'll ask the question: Like, if you're a DM, why wait? That's true. Should, should folks just, just adopt that. this rule today? True. Sure. Yeah, that's. A... I would definitely be careful of that for the things that are currently once per day because they are power balanced around X number of times per day. I can't think of a lot of good examples that are explicitly like once per day that aren't either racial based or on casters 
again, you're, you're going to want to be really careful about who you're granting these things to because, in general, anything that's limited to once per day is already on a, a thing where they needed to limit that to once per day because it's already strong. Maybe you look at this as like, okay, has this character gone through and picked a bunch of blue options? No, you get it once per day. Stop that. Um, has this character built someone who's interesting and maybe needs a little bit of a boost? Sure, let's give you proficiency bonus per long rest. Um, and so I would say, would I allow it case by case, but with a real heavy leaning towards I'm probably not going to um, un- unless there's a good reason for it. Yeah, I think there's probably a, a social cure here of ha- having that conversation of like, okay, look, I noticed you never use this. Is it because you're saving it for when you really have to have it? In which case, I don't mind you having two of them because just use the feature. Right. Yeah, uh, especially if it's a really cool feature. And counter that argument, uh, yeah, nothing's balanced in 5e. And uh, my, uh, I'll quote Mike Rawls, and he says, I don't mind giving my players broken shit because I can break the game like 10 times more than they can as the DM. <laughs> Exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it just kind of depends. Yeah, mutually assured. No, anyway. Awesome. So, so uh, uh, I, I think the answer to this from everyone is yes, we're going to see more of this. Um, if you want to backport it, case-by-case basis is a good way to look at it. Uh, my personal opinion, if it recharges once per short rest, um, using the one-time per proficiency bonus is probably a good transition. Uh, like the Dragonborn's Breath Weapon is probably a good example of something that would say, yeah, okay, once once per day yeah. per proficiency bonus. Yeah, mm-hmm. it really does. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm really so hoping Fizzbands is going to do a lot of great things for the Dragonborn. Mm-hmm. Okay, I just I want to heckle on that, right? So I can cast <laughs> Dragon's Breath, and then for a minute, or better, right? Or because this has actually happened on our game recently, I can twin spell Dragon's Breath. <laughs> So I can touch yeah. two people, and for a minute, they or can just breathe touch fire. Touch or, your familiar. Yeah, and yeah. then can, can breathe fire ten times, but the actual dragonborn gets to use it once. Yeah. yeah. And but, it's okay. a pitiful amount of damage. Like, it's so bad. It's well, so clearly bad. this is because sorcerers are better dragons than dragonborn are dragons. <laughs> no, it makes me so mad. The dragon line <laughs> sorcerers are better dragonborns than dragonborns. It's like, what the fuck, wizards? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're a sorcerer dragonborn. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when, <laughs> when you want to choose dragon for your race and your class. Um, <laughs> but we did have one very, very glorious moment in our... Uh, uh, Randall and I share a game currently where everyone in the party had a breath weapon for about two rounds, and it was spectacular. Wow, that, that sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah. And it was a beautiful twelve seconds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I think we did it. I think that's a whole episode. Uh, next episode, we have something really special. It's the culmination of Spooktober. We are going to do. A horror one-shot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm Randall James. You can find me at AmateurJack.com. Also, at Jack Amateur on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm Tyler Campstra. I'm already scared. Uh, You can find me at RPGBot.net. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at RPGBOTDOTNET and Patreon.com slash RPGBot. Uh, I'm Random Pell. You won't find me much on social media, although in places where people play games, I'm often there as Harlequin or Harlequint. But mostly you'll find me here contributing to RPG Bot, both articles on the website and here on the podcast. And uh, I'm Ash. Uh, I don't have a lot of public social media, but like I said at the beginning, you can follow our podcast, my podcast and Colby's podcast, Crit Fails, uh, at Twitter, at Crit underscore Fails. Colby kind of manages all that stuff. They, put, uh, they just did Sword Timber, where they put a bunch of uh, custom swords every day for 30 days. So check them out. Because they put a lot of work in. Yeah, a lot of those were really great, honestly. I might use a couple in my games. And uh, Colby drew all of the art, too, which was a surprise. Cause... Yeah. They were they were exhausted by the end. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Nice, nice. All right. Uh, thanks to producer Dan. All hail to Leisure Illuminati. Hail. hail. All right. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes. Uh, following these links helps us make this show happen every week. I think we talked a lot about a lot of cool stuff, uh, in particular the Heroes of Horror from 3.5s on DM's Guild. 
uh, go get it. Castle Ravenloft is also available. If, if horror is something that you want to delve into, there's a lot of great resources. And if you happen to buy them through the affiliate links, it really helps us keep doing what we're doing. You can find our podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you enjoy this hot podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe and share it with your friends. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email uh, podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. If your monster should be the monster of the week next week, uh, please message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Hashtag monsterizer.